Hey everybody, this is Mike Van Meter and welcome to the Recovery is Possible show. And uh, guys, today I'm really excited here, even though it is Friday the 13th. I don't know if you guys know that, but it is Friday the 13th. But I am up in Maryland at at Ashley Addiction Treatment Center. And this is a special place for me. And those of you that listen to this show know that about a year ago, I talked to a a gentleman named David Nassif and we talked about the history of Ashley because if you're familiar with the addiction world, Father Martin Ash, uh, Father uh, Joseph Martin is really a staple of the recovery community, and um, the people that have been around—it's—it's it's rare for people to be in the recovery community and not have heard of him. But this is the very place where he worked. Uh, was one of the—he was really the influence behind starting Ashley, and so it's a, a really, really great place for me. Uh, I also went through treatment here um, a little over ten years ago, so it's a special place for me personally. And I am here today talking to the co-CEOs, Alex Densman and uh, Dr. Greg Hobelman. And we're going to be talking to them today, not so much about the history of Ashley, but about where Ashley is today in the future, because there are a lot of exciting things going on at Ashley. And uh, I'm honored to be here today. I appreciate the invitation from from you guys coming, having me up here at Ashley. And I know I get asked about Ashley quite a bit from patients that I work with now. And they are, they're always asking me, well, what is the future? What's the future of recovery? What about medically, uh, medically, medically assisted treatment? What about uh, all the different programs that are out there? And where do we start? Because a lot of times I have patients that will come in and talk to me and they have zero experience in 12 steps, in Dharma, in Celebrate Recovery, and um, all, of the, uh, all the different programs that are out there. So a lot of questions out, and maybe you guys can help us out with that. But let's start off with, A, introducing yourselves, talking about what your role is here, and then we'll get into uh, where Ashley is and where it's going. So maybe start with Alex? Sure. Yeah, so my name is uh, Alex Dansman, as Mike noted. I'm one of the co-CEOs here, and uh, Greg and I have served in these positions for close to two years and uh, both happy to do so. Both have worked at Ashley for a number of years prior. So uh, while Greg oversees uh, all the direct care services, all the clinical medical nursing teams and so forth, uh, I I support him in seeing all the non-direct care teams such as finance and HR and business development, all those things. So like Mike, uh, I got sober at Ashley. I was a patient here in 2003. So it's particularly uh, rewarding for me to work here and uh, help uh, oversee our mission and um, ensure we can create as much access as possible for, for those in need. And uh, yeah, happy to happy to have you here. Well, thank you. Yeah, and I'm Greg yeah, Hobelman, so the other co-CEO. As Alex mentioned, I do oversee most of the patient care activities. Um, I did not attend treatment here at Ashley, but I went through two treatments um, in 2009-2011. Uh, and prior to that, I was doing anesthesiology and pain management. Um, I came up to Ashley in between my treatments as a staff physician, fell in love with the place, fell in love with um, the, the patients, the community, and uh, but I did relapse and I went to treatment in 2011 and then I went back and uh, retrained as a psychiatrist and got back here in um, 2016. So um, over that time I came back as a staff psychiatrist and then just sort of raised my hand for, for various duties and um, and ultimately, you know, over the past few years, we've developed into this co-leadership model that, that works really well for us here. Oh, great. Now, you mentioned, uh, and actually a good way to start this off is I hear from a lot of patients, because I work in a detox center right now, a lot of patients coming through. You know, we'll have a patient leave, and a week later, come back. 
this idea of relapse. Now, you mentioned relapsing a couple of times. That was true in, in my story as well. And of course, relapse does not have to be a part of, of someone's story, but oftentimes it is. In fact, probably more often than not. Could you maybe address that a little bit? And so somebody that's listening to this podcast that uh, is going through that and going through this relapse and relapse and relapse and, and they become frustrated um, from a medical standpoint, maybe shed some light on that? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to is substance use disorder a disease? You know, we don't have to talk about that. It doesn't really matter, but it fits very well into the medical model of what we think of as a chronic disorder or disease. And the nature of chronic disorders is a, a relapse and remit. As you noted, it does not have to be part of the, the picture or part of a person's story, but it very frequently is. And when you compare it to other chronic uh, diseases, it's much the same, you know. And uh, the great thing is, like those other diseases, it can be treated very well. So um, it's largely dependent on the person uh, mm-hmm. and where they are and talk about these things in the 12 steps all the time, you know, in, in AA or whatever 12-step program it might be. Mm. But you do have to start with, you know, honesty, open-mindedness, willingness, understanding where you are, acceptance of where you are, so that you can really start the journey to recovery. Mm-hmm. And part of that, you know, is, is as people do that uh, in, in part ways, you know, or they're, they're, they're doing things that aren't necessarily the best for their recovery, relapses do happen yeah i know for me and i have patients ask me all the time because i'm pretty open about my my own recovery they they always say well what what's sort of the secret sauce you know what what did you do to get on this run of sobriety and in my case it's it's a little over 10 years now you touched on it i i think that part of it well not part of it all of it is that willingness and that that honesty that willingness to to be able to take direction from those that have traveled this path and have gotten well because after all addiction is a disease of the mind and the body you know there's that genetic genetic pre-uploading there's um, psychological aspects to it there's a lot of different factors to it and it's the disease that you have that tells you that you don't have the disease so we have to attack it from the medical port the physiological portion but then also from the psychological portion and oftentimes and i hear this and i know here at ashley when i interned here um, i would hear it from the patients as well you know like hey mike i hear you saying that but here's what works for me or here's what i prefer to do and you know, there's that fine line, and I'll, I'll get, you know, your, your opinions on this, that fine line between, you know, having the freedom to make your own decisions, and, and you should make your own decisions when you come into recovery, but it really is important to listen to those that have been successful, because the people that have been successful in recovery generally do the same things. Recovery is individual, but it really is of people doing the, the same things and having that openness and that, that willingness to follow the successful path, which is not picking up a, a drug or a drink. And that's the hard part. And I know you guys are doing a, a lot of work in uh, looking at this, you know, and particularly with medically assisted treatment in the beginning, because that may be very, that may be helpful to a patient in getting some medical assistance, particularly in that first year. You know, what kinds of things are you guys doing with that? And um, what, what sort of success rates are you seeing? Well, I'll tell you, yeah. the first thing is uh, even, even how we conceptualize it, you know, we, we call it uh, medication-assisted treatment. Mm-hmm. And we actually use the term uh, medication-supported recovery. 
because um, ultimately what we're looking for is someone to get into that place of recovery. You know? mm-hmm. and, and as you noted, um, there are certain essentials that are needed for someone to get to that place. They're not necessarily sufficient, but they are essential. You know, that mm-hmm. is that honesty, open-mindedness, acceptance, willingness, peace. Um, but we want to look at each individual and we want to treat them according to where they are and what their, their needs are. Mm-hmm. Um, medication is inherent to treatment of a disorder. So we don't think it's assisting treatment. We think it's just inherently part of it. So um, when we look at medications, we say we want to have everything available that might be, we might be able to use in any particular case. Mm-hmm. So we want to have all the tools to treat, to treat patients. And over the past five years, we've really gotten there. We have all of that, our ability to treat patients with sort of gold standard care, with you know, with anything that we possibly can, you know, we're able to do it now, which mm-hmm. is great. Yeah, and along with that is aftercare, right? And here at Ashley, you have a lot of uh, opportunities for aftercare too, don't you? Yeah. When it comes to intensive yeah. outpatient, um, sober living houses. Yeah, so I, I think part of our mission uh, these past five, six years and growing access and reaching a bigger audience because we know this uh, the prevalence of substance use disorders has only grown uh, in recent years. So part of how we've had to evolve is uh, grow our continuum. So for a long time, you know, we'll be 40 years old uh, next Tuesday. So at the timing of when this is being recorded. So in, in yeah. mid-January, we'll be 40 years old. So for 30, 32 of those years, you know, Ashley sort of existed as a traditional inpatient program and uh we offered you know family services and a prevention program for kids and a variety of things but generally we existed one way uh we understood the importance uh about six years ago mm-hmm. uh, opening outpatient locations you know so we're really fortunate to have two uh outpatient clinics uh one about 20 miles north one about 20 miles south and mm-hmm. They're more community facing and they accept medical assistance. And we're really proud of that um, because we can reach more people. So there are people who otherwise could not access care here, not just for, for financial reasons, just because, you know, residential treatment is just can be sort of disruptive. You know, we understand the value in it, but, you know, not everyone's in a position where they can go to treatment for 28, 30, 35 days. So it allows us to treat more patients. Uh, the other thing we've done in recent years is add extended care programming uh, to our continuum, meaning if a person is in our care, or if they do primary treatment elsewhere, they can get anywhere from two to three months of additional treatment, uh, which which we see uh, to be really important and useful for, for some people who require more time in a residential setting. So happy about all those things. Yeah, I mean, we really want to have um, that full continuum because we want to people keep people engaged. Uh, we. One of the few things we know for sure is that continued engagement improves outcomes, mm-hmm. and we want to have the ability to do that within our system and really keep them close to Ashley, keep them engaged in our programming, and if not here, keep them engaged, you know, in other programs, and ultimately, you know, in whatever is beneficial to their recovery, such as mutual self-help groups, um, so that those patients' outcomes can improve. Right. Um- with with COVID, we've seen the advent of online meetings as well. In our in your IOP programs, is it both in person and online? It is, yeah. So <coughs> credit to our IOP staff, uh, Janet Gulia in particular, who when COVID started, uh, we didn't know the duration, or I mean, I was still obviously li- living in it. Um, mm-hmm. But they stood up a telehealth system rather quickly. I think in the course of just a couple of weeks, you know, so we were able to move the patients in our care at that time to telehealth. Uh, that poses, you know, some advantages for some and challenges for others, you mm-hmm. know, so it's, it's sort of a mixed bag and we're, 
I think all really interested to see what role telehealth will play moving forward. Uh, we plan to uh, keep it uh, and, and continue to offer it because it's, it's proven uh, useful to some. And uh, currently we offer a hybrid. So we have some services that were, which are live and in person and, and that's great. Um, and we have some services that remain uh, virtual. Uh, it's great for those people who can experience this that way. And then also we have a 12 step support group uh, meetings uh, for alumni and they're incredibly well attended. So even after two plus years, uh, it's one of the most sort of successful endeavors mm-hmm. we've uh, experienced the past past uh, number of years during COVID. Yeah, and, and I, are you still doing the alumni programs? Yeah, you know they are. We're, so we're at we're at, a, at an interesting point now. Where we're starting to kind of imagine a you know a, a somewhat return to normalcy, whatever that means <laughs> in twenty twenty three, and how do we reintroduce some of those things which served us so well in the past and you know learn from the from our experience during COVID to sort of bring some of those things forward. So I'm not sure we ever would have. Uh, understood the value in offering telehealth or understood the uh, benefit to our alumni in offering online meetings. But COVID led us to those things and we're going to carry a lot of those things forward. Yeah, I, I, I know I used to attend the meetings down in, in my area quite a bit. That's something I really appreciated about Ashley was having that continued contact after you left. And I think that that is important, whether it's done here or whether it's done somewhere else, that when I work with the patients now, particularly in the detox center, you all, it's, it's always the same story. I was going to meetings. I was in a community, whatever that community may be. I was doing that, and then I stopped, and then, then I relapsed. Right. You know, addiction is isolation. Recovery is community, and, and there is just such – I mean, Ashley, I know in this area, particularly in the East Coast, when you walk into a, room, a recovery room and you mention Ashley, everybody knows. Right. What, everybody in the recovery world has heard of Ashley. You know, I know when I did my graduate program, which was another program, um, when I told them I was I was interning at Ashley, it was oh my gosh, Ashley, <laughs> you know that's that's fantastic. So, and it sounds like you guys are really continuing that legacy of being out front and being sort of the you know, creating the the new paths in the recovery world. And if you could. Um, there are a lot of tech, not just technology, but even concepts that are new from the time I was here. Could you maybe discuss some of those? Well, I think if you go back to um, 10 years ago, this was, as Alex was describing, you know, a 28-day abstinence-based program. And mm-hmm. it, was, it was sort of a, you know, a one-size-fits-all. And then um, we did have continuing care and tried to help people up with uh, resources afterwards. Um, but we're looking to do that in a much better way. And uh, over the past 10 years, you know, there's been a tremendous amount of change. We've learned a lot. Um, There's really no silver lining to the opioid epidemic, but it has brought um, some increased awareness into substance use disorders and uh, into the true individual and societal burden of it. Um, But we have uh, have looked at what are the evidence-based modalities that we know are effective in treatment and we want to have those here. So we did uh, bring buprenorphine, uh, which is agonist treatment for opioid mm-hmm. use disorder. Um, and we brought that to our campus for those who you know have been struggling and are appropriate and it's where it's indicated. We'll start people on maintenance of that medication. Um, we are able to treat patients on methadone here now. We work with their opioid treatment program outside, but they come here for, for treatment. We will continue their methadone while here while they're getting you know, the, the psychosocial support and treatment that they need to overcome 
you know, whatever other addictions are in their lives. So we have really opened our, our mind up to, um, to any means that has been shown to be effective. And I, I will say, as we were talking you know, before uh, we jumped on this, that, uh, that the 12-step the and mutual self-help programs are incredibly effective. Yep. And there's been more and more research coming out recently. Um, Dr. John Kelly has done a lot of that research to show the effectiveness. 12-step groups and um, and it's really important it goes back to creating that sense of community and providing enriched environments for people and connections for people because we know that that's quite effective uh, in long-term recovery I mean yeah. part, part of how we look at this too it's we, we think Ashley's sort of the best of both worlds right so we have this time-tested approach we've got an almost 40-year legacy at this point so we've operated well and ethically for all these years um, but we're also kind of leaning into this opportunity to sort of reimagine you know what what treatment uh, can look like, you know, so how do we take those best elements, bring those forward? It's, it's like COVID, you know, mm-hmm. there's so many kind of parallels between we talk about COVID or overall strategic plan. What can we, what, what can we bring forward and how can we evolve and adapt? Um, you know, so we're at a point now, you know, medication and the use of it, this is no longer controversial, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, alternative sort of forms of treatment like outpatient and extended care. That, that's not unusual now. Like all these things are just very standard, you know, so uh, this is kind of a, I think, a fortunate time for us to be in these roles as leaders because uh, we have access to such a great deal. But um, the other flip side of that is we're leaning into this being a real cutting edge addiction medicine provider. And, you know, whether that's the research, which I'm, I'm sure you'll ask uh, Greg to speak to in a moment, mm-hmm. but uh, there's opportunities for us to, you know, really just deepen um, what we do and how we do it. I'm glad to hear that because I know. It's interesting, when I went through my graduate program to do this work, I talked about a lot of things, studied a lot of things. The one thing that we did not spend a lot of time talking about was how can we take the existing models for recovery, and and maybe you, you can address this as we get into that subject, and that is looking at the, the long-term, like the number of people, percentage of people that get into long-term recovery, Right. And that's sort of like in our world, the addiction world, that's kind of like the finding the cure to cancer, so to speak. You know, the person that can can unravel that will get the Nobel Peace Prize. If you can, what is it that you we can do to get you into get you abstinent and get you into long term recovery, right? But the one thing I, that is was not talked about a whole lot in my graduate program, and it surprised me was. Are our current models effective? And if not, and I think we could argue that they are not, by and large, nationwide, worldwide, actually. Why? Let's take a better, let's take a harder look at these programs, and let's devote the time to improve the the outcomes. It sounds like you guys are doing that, and so tell me if I'm missing the mark on that. The success rates, and then what you are, and I don't mean here at Ashley. I just mean worldwide. And then talk about the, the research and where are we going with that to improve it? There's a lot there, Mike. You know, mm-hmm. That's <laughs> a big question. It's a big yeah, question. Yeah. There's a lot to it. But um, you kind of think of you know, substance use disorder and the field of treatment of substance use disorder. You know, I call it as the redheaded stepchild or the redheaded stepchild. So you yeah. have you know, somatic medicine and then you have mental or behavioral health you know, as the redheaded stepchild and then the... the substance use disorder treatment as, uh, you know, as a subset of that. But, you know, for a large period of time in the 20th century and early 21st century, it was largely ignored with regard to outcomes and creating evidence-based medicine approaches and so forth. Um, now that has to do with 
how treatment evolved, you know, and it evolved largely outside of the healthcare system mm -hmm. during the, the 20th century. And so we understand very well that we have to know what our outcomes are. You know, how is what we are doing working? Now, you mentioned that, you know, that we don't have really good success rates, but that's arguable. Mm -hmm. If you look and compare it to other diseases, we have pretty good success rates, you know. Uh, and what is ultimately the outcome that we want? Because, you know, you talk about being abstinent in long-term recovery. There are actually two separate things. Mm -hmm. So recovery, we have to really define what recovery is and what those, those metrics are because recovery also can include a reduction in use, which then improves our relationships, improves our ability to work, you know, improves our general mental health, reduces our anxiety, gives us peace of mind, improves our resilience, all of these things. So we want to be looking at those outcomes to see how we're doing. So we have to really come from a, a, a different angle instead of saying, hey, did you use or did you not use? And saying, ah, no, we have better measurements of recovery, you know, and it really is a, a full spectrum. So uh, there has been a large push, rightfully so, and it should be, on getting those outcomes. But we're early, you know, mm -hmm. we're way behind the medical world. We're way behind the, the behavioral mental health world as well in doing that. But there's a really great effort, you know, and, and we certainly are a huge part of that effort. So um, about three years ago, we really did uh, decide we want to, maybe it was four years ago, three, four years ago, say we, we have to be doing this. There's no question about it. And so we looked at who we could partner with and how we could do it. And so we have some um, faculty from Johns Hopkins who work with us and, uh, and are very um, dedicated to the work that they do up here. And then we have built some internal staff to really build a research program to not only look at our outcomes, but also to design studies to learn more about what is effective and what interventions can we implement in the future to improve those outcomes? But we do have to know the outcomes mm -hmm. first. Yeah. So we use a variety of means to do that, you know, and uh, I mean, it consists of looking at publicly available data and asking questions about that. It consists of really following our patients over time to get some long-term data and follow-up has always been an issue. <laughs> People, you know, return to use, they tend not to provide that follow-up. So that's why it's been so difficult to get those outcomes. Um, and then we're looking at, you know, really innovative stuff, like looking at biometrics, you know, the work that we're doing with WHOOP and putting, um, you know, WHOOP straps on patients and looking at what's happening with their sleep and sleep architecture and their heart rate variability, you know, and, and their, their resting heart rate and so forth to see you know, how they're doing in their recovery. So it's really mm -hmm. neat when you combine a variety of different outcome measures and look at it, and then we want to tie those back to how do we use them clinically. Mm -hmm. So when patients see that and they see that they're making improvements, you know, potentially provide greater motivation, and ultimately what we would like is to, to figure out what the predictive models are. So we can, if we can predict um, when a person is struggling, you know, and may return to use, you know, we can intervene at that point. Mm -hmm. So we have a lot of, you know, big ideas and big thoughts, and we have a really good infrastructure here uh, to start doing that work, and we have started doing it, um, but it's going to be a long-term project. It is, and the nice thing about it, one of, the, one of the things I think has changed over the last 10 years is sort of the public perception of, of addiction. Because I know when I came into treatment, 
it was, you know, put a brown bag over my head. I don't want anybody to know that I'm here. I don't, you know, just the shame and the stigma that goes along with addiction. We still have that, but I think it's, my perception is that it's le- it's becoming less, because I, I think COVID, if, if there's something else that COVID has done for us, is really highlight mental health issues and addiction issues, sure. because I think people understand that. The other thing that we did not have when I was here was fentanyl. I'd never heard of fentanyl when I was, when I was here, and actually. Now, working in the detox center, the majority of patients are fentanyl patient. Yeah, it is. It, it's when I have a patient come in now and I talk to them about their drug of choice and they say alcohol and I and, and I'm, what else? Well, no, just alcohol. I'm, I'm shocked. I'm like, really? Just alcohol. Um, th- that shows you how the world has changed, how, how our world has, has changed. Um, with that, we are getting more and more people that are coming in and getting help and talking about community and and you do this and so what i'm leading with this is one of the things i like about ashley is you do have support groups here and in fact you have small groups that are tailored to particular communities whether it's um professions whether it's uh uh sexual orientation with and, and there's others maybe senior communities and things right. like that those are new too i don't remember those being here when i was here before uh, what was driving that uh, is that helpful uh, and what kind of drove you into doing so. that it's a nice thing for us to offer so we, we talk a lot about the importance of connection mm-hmm. I, th- I think you referenced earlier that alcoholism addiction it's such an isolating illness mm-hmm. that uh, we if we have 100 patients in care today we have 100 very unique stories and experiences but I think the thing they shared is that feeling of isolation mm-hmm. and that, that, that lack of connection with, with their support systems, with their families, with their communities. So that's something we want to create for people. So we think there's this larger community that they can uh, feel some level of connection with, and that's the patient community overall. Um, but we also see opportunities to create these smaller pockets within the patient community where people with shared experiences, shared interests, um, shares, shared ways of identifying can connect, you know, because you talked about that language of the heart, right? That, mm-hmm. that, that connection piece. I think sometimes the connections patients make with each other, hearing other people's experiences, are as impactful as the connections they make with our staff and the you know, education, so to speak, because that's where you can really draw a great deal of inspiration and hope from. And that's one thing I really appreciate about our staff. You don't have to be in recovery to work here, but a lot of our staff are, and we have our own experiences, which we share quite freely. Um, I think that's where that inspiration, that hope, really happens uh, for a lot of our patients. Um, but to, to your point, it, those smaller groups, whether it's for professionals or uh, for older adults, we call it the, the silver silver group, you know, so. Yeah. I'm in that category, by the way. <laughs> I'm in that category, if you can't tell. So for our experience, folks, you know, so it, it, it's just nice because they can connect and, you know, their, their life challenges or things they have mm-hmm. to experience when they leave here, that we want them to have a safe space to process those things and prepare accordingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, you know, you talk about the differences between ten years ago and now. I mean, I think that a lot of the thought of t- ten years ago was, let's get someone address their substance use disorder, get them stabilized so that they can continue their recovery, begin them on a path towards recovery. And we like that, we love it, we know that it works. But right now, we're not seeing this as th- there's no such thing as treating substance use disorder alone, you know, or in a box. People have a variety of issues, you know, the, the mental health issues, the personality issues, their family of origin issues, and that stuff really does have to be addressed. So by creating these uh, these groups, you do help people to connect, you do help people mm-hmm. to identify with each other, you know, and get them started on that plane in a different way. And of course, 
you know, looking at, you know, doing a, a thorough evaluation, understanding those patients well, because often there are mental health needs that need to be addressed, yeah. you know, I mean, and, uh, and even if it's somebody with uh, only a diagnosis of substance use disorder, there are plenty of symptoms that are there. So how do we address them the best way? And and again, it's not a one size fits all model. Yeah, and and really getting people to you, you relate to the entire patient population, of course. But I also like the fact that you do have in, in the small groups. There are certain groups where, uh, just take for example, air, uh, pilots and and government folks, law right. enforcement folks. You have specific groups for that because that's important. I know from my own experience in coming in, that can be a real um, addiction can be isolating, but then if you're somebody that came from my profession, right. that can be even more isolating. And that was certainly not a group that existed when I was here. And I absolutely see the value of it. And yeah, so I and really like that. I mean, over the years, we work really closely with a number of uh, airlines and the FAA. And so the airline industry, you know, we feel honored. They put a lot of trust in us and mm-hmm. obviously a lot of people's, uh, you know, safety and you know, personal well-being depends on these pilots being, you know, sober and supported and in good recovery. So we've worked with them quite a lot um, uh, over the past few years, uh, but it's always been part of what we've done. And I think it just gives us some insight as to, you know, what these guys and gals need post-treatment. And they are very fortunate because the, the support they get from airlines, from their peer pilots, mm-hmm. um, the monitoring, the accountability that creates, I mean, talk about success rates. I mean, if, if the world could replicate sort of what the... Uh, airline industry does, or what uh, you know, physicians and other healthcare providers do. Um, it's 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 pretty inspiring to see the success rates among those groups. Yeah, I noticed that when I was here because when I interned, that was one of the one of the semesters I worked with that particular right. population, and it really was that it it appeared to me, and you correct me if I'm wrong. It seemed like they had the highest success rate. There's I think there's reasons behind that. For they're sure. they're strictly for monitored sure. for two years plenty after of, they leave. Plenty of skin in the game too. A lot yeah, of support. But, I mean, their yeah. livelihoods depend on this. And mm-hmm. um, but you know it's interesting. They have a group, but it's not an exclusive group to where mm-hmm. you know they don't have uh, ample interaction with the rest of the patient community. Sure. So it's it's not as if we're trying to sort of feed in this idea that certain people are special and, and deserve some certain type of treatment. You know, whether it's pilots or whomever, you know, they might have two hours of programming in a given day, which mm-hmm. is specific to them. But the rest of the day is spent in the community, else, you know, yeah. with, uh, with with a larger patient population. And, you know, candidly, I think that's what most people will experience when they leave here if they adopt a lot mm-hmm. of the things that we recommend. They, they're going to need to embrace that sort of connection with, uh, you know, with a diverse group. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you you do need that. And I know I work with a lot of law in my field, law enforcement and military. And when I work with people in 12 step, my own personal 12 step groups, and I'll have, you know, police officers in particular will come up and say, hey, I I just want to go to a police meeting. That's all I want to do. I'm going to work with you. I only want to. And I what I in the beginning, in order to get them into the program, that's a good way to get them in. But then I try to work them out of that because recovery is not about you and your particular population. Recovery about you and, and everyone else and being able to relate to everyone else because this is not an us and them endeavor. This is your interacting with the community. And oftentimes too, if you spend too much pe- time with people that come from a particular community, you tend to talk about that. Like a lot of police specific meetings, um, it, it will tend to turn into shop talk as opposed to recovery talk. And I, tr- I try to get them out of that because when we come together and we talk, it is about recovery and, and getting well and, and dealing with it. Because after all, you're not going to be a police officer your 
your entire life or an airline pilot or in the military your entire life you you that's going to end at some point whether you make it end or you because there's a certain age that you will have to leave now what are you going to do from there does your recovery program end you know it's a good place to start but you have to it's uh you know people have a variety of identities and um you know they're they're Occupation could be an identity. So yeah. I think the huge value for me when I went down to, I got um, treatment down in Talbot in Atlanta, and there were a lot of physicians down there. And the first thing was, I'm not the only one. <laughs> you know, I mean, I felt like, wow, because I did feel like that. I felt like I'm the only I did one. Too, yeah. I felt completely isolated, alone, and that absolutely fed into my need, desire, whatever you call it, to use, you know? Mm-hmm. And so. The problem actually only got worse in that setting. So the initial value is, wow, I've got you know people that just right away I can identify with um, that are doing well. The other thing is that there are certain needs, you know, for particular groups. So mm-hmm. you know, if you're talking about law enforcement, you know, they go and see things that most people don't. So how are they dealing with that? There's value right. there, and I love how you said it. You know, ultimately we want to introduce them to the world of recovery, and you know, when you're sitting in an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, it's the ultimate equalizer. You know, I mean, everybody is there dealing with one particular issue, being vulnerable, and, uh, and you know, you really do start to, it's not a stop drinking program, it's a start living program, and you learn how to really live life, you know, mm-hmm. and the benefits of it are just tremendous because it's a decrease in anxiety, you know, it's an increase in joy and happiness, you know, it's an ability to, to relate to folks in a much better way, to improve relationships, um, I mean, it goes on and on, the Mm -hmm. dividends that we get from recovery. Yeah, and I think particularly over the last couple of years, I know the the police officers I'm working with, with the whole defund the police movement and and really just sort of the the cultural aspects of what has happened over the last couple of years, it's put police officers into um, a space where they, they don't, they feel like they're under attack from every direction and so when they come into treatment again they already feel like they're isolated they feel like they're the only one they're not you and i know that but they think that and i think that it's okay that's that safe space where i can talk about what i'm going through because it is unique i I often tell people um you know because of my background not only am i retired fbi agent but i was a, a street police officer you know we saw in one day we saw things that would put most people in therapy for the rest of their life in one day in one day but you're doing this for year after year after year and it really does jade you you sort of your your mental outlook and so it makes sense to me that they would like to have people around them that kind of understand what they go through same is true with the military same is true with the airline pilot physicians you know because a lot of times you'll have physicians or nurses that will will come into the program and they need to have that initial safe place now in time um i know in my own recovery and i'm sure with you as well i became much more comfortable with my recovery and i have no problem talking to anyone at any time about in fact when i speak to the public i often start out my talk with talking about how i'm in long-term recovery and i have found that that's that creates more connection than than a divide because what i have found maybe you have found this is rarely if ever do i find someone that doesn't know someone that needs to be in recovery in their life. And I, there's so many people out there that need to hear the message that you and I are t- talking about. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm, I'm the same way. Uh, I think that uh, there's tremendous power in vulnerability and it allows us to connect and that creates really good feelings, which promotes our recovery. So, mm-hmm. 
you know, I tend to very much be, you know, open about this and inviting, you know, of, of folks to, to know about what's happening with me. And over time in my recovery, what I experienced is that, you know, at first there's this deep seated shame, you know, that, that feels terrible. And over time in good recovery, the pride in my recovery way supersedes the shame that mm-hmm. I felt, you know, and I think that what we're doing with regard to our recovery, we have to begin by reducing that shame because if that shame persists, you know, it's really, really hard to get into a, a life of good recovery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And it is something to be proud of because I, you know, I've done a lot of difficult things in my life. You being a doctor certainly have done very difficult things in your life, but, but getting into recovery, successful recovery is probably ranks up there. Yeah. I think Does it not? Yeah. I mean, uh, I can't, I'm I mean, no doctor. I can't speak for no medical school. I, I think that I will say the most difficult time in my life was the period of active substance use disorder and getting into good recovery. I mean, it took me four years from when I sort of had knowledge that, hey, this is a problem. I better do something about this to finally getting into a place where I felt okay and, and could start that recovery process, you know, and start feeling better. No question, it's the most difficult thing that I've done. But it's also paid more dividends than anything that I've ever done. Yeah. And I think what I, you know, I think what am I most proud of is the fact that I was able to achieve good recovery, and you know, I'm continuing to live this life. You know, which is also about, you know, I have a value system. I'm living by that value system to the best of my ability. You yeah. know, I understand that I'm human. I make mistakes. Yeah, you know, I can be vulnerable about those things, um, and ultimately, you know, I can try to. Uh, be you know of service to others through taking care of myself first and foremost. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm able to you know to be available you know for mm-hmm. my my wife, for my kids, for other family members, for patients, for friends. You know, it's been a really really wonderful journey. Yeah. You you said something earlier that I actually said to another patient recently that I think is very important to understand that recovery and twelve steps in general and even. I guess you could talk about the the program here. Recovery is not necessarily about stopping drinking and and drugging. It's about not starting drinking and drugging. And so, you know, in detox where I work right now, we stabilize those patients, get them safe, hopefully get them into a program like what you have here, stabilize them even further, and then educate them on the disease and then uh, the various methods of recovery programs that that are out there. But then what people don't, you know, maybe talk about this a little bit more about that experiencing what life is all about, because recovery is about learning to live. You mentioned that. And then dealing with whatever other issues we have, because we have the causes and conditions, right? The condition is we have that genetic um, predisposition, many of us do, um, or it, we, we've just be, we've become addicted. That's the condition, right? But then the causes, for, for example, if you have a period of recovery, you and I, if we were to walk out of here today and go out and start drinking or drugging, after a decade, there was something that happened. And it wasn't because I had alcohol in my system and, and that created that that obsession to drink. Once, once we put it into our, our bodies, it takes over, the disease takes over. It's not there after 10 years, at least not physiologically. If I walk out of here, there's something that will upset me. There's something that will disrupt my psyche that will cause me to want to go back, go and escape, which is ultimately what addiction is, wanting to escape from being present, right? What is What are sort of your thoughts on that, and what do you do here at Ashley to prepare the patients for that mindset, that it, it's really about learning to live life on life's terms? Yeah, I mean, that yeah. is 
the psychoeducation that goes on here. That's part of the group therapy. That's part of the individual therapy. That's part of the lectures. That's part of the experiential interventions that we do. I mean, it's baked into to everything I mean, because that is really the key. I, I think of recovery as uh, learning to take care of yourself. Whatever that mm-hmm. means, it's learning to take care of yourself. And the spiritual part of that is that you are doing those things that will ultimately get you to a place of serenity, peace of mind, calmness, ability to make good choices, good decisions. Um, yeah, the, the, you think about why we drink, why we use drugs, you know, and it usually starts off because someone suggested it to us, you know, because it was a, Originally, a yeah. peer pressure piece mm-hmm. to it, you know, and we know the later that you start using substances, the less risk you have of developing a substance use disorder. We know there's some sort of genetic susceptibility. Some have more than others. We haven't perfected that yet, but we understand that there's that piece in there. At least that's our current understanding of it. And um, and then we start to drink because we enjoy it. We like it. You know, we like the effects that are brought on. And then over time, you end up drinking because it's relieving symptoms. You know, the whatever symptoms there are. So you know, the the substance, you know, as we talk about all the time, is the substance use is a symptom of something else, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it really is digging into that that something else and finding out what that is, you know? Uh, And you don't have to go back and look and say, oh, I drank because of this or I drank because of that. But let's take an inventory. Let's look at ourselves. Let's really truly understand ourselves so that we can be on that spiritual journey, you know, of, of getting better and really realizing how to take care of ourselves. And that's the process that we're, we're talking about. And that's, the, that's what we're doing here mm-hmm. uh, with our treatment. In addition to providing uh, the, the treatment for any medical disorders, any psychiatric disorders, any symptoms, you know, and then building in, you know, how do you create the connection with others and the community that uh, is so vital for, for really um, maximizing or optimizing the experience of recovery. Yeah, and let me ask you this. We talked about fentanyl a little bit. We've had this explosion. We really have. You've you've clearly seen an uptick here in this this treatment center from, from fentanyl. Is it more difficult, would you say, because I get asked this quite a bit from my own patients, and that is it harder to get off of something like fentanyl, which is something that's designed in a, in a lab? Is that is there something about, you know, the, the work that it does on the recesses of the brain that makes that more difficult or, or not? How would you compare that to, say, alcohol? And so, I mean, you know, substances do play a role. You look at mm-hmm. um, um, certain processes in substance use disorder that are, are you know, Across all substances, but yeah, you do want to look at individual substances. Really, it's more the category. So, you know, how are opioids different than mm-hmm. alcohol? Different than benzodiazepines? Different than stimulants? And you know, what is that withdrawal process? What is the post-acute withdrawal? You know, while we're working on the generalities that have nothing to do with the actual substance, you know, that part of, of recovery. But yeah, I think that mm-hmm. we have to pay attention to those those uh, special populations and. Uh, and consider that when we're, we're treating. So, of course, everything from medications to what we're discussing to how to prepare them for what they're going to experience and so forth. Um, fentanyl, you know, is it unique from other opioids? Um, only with regard to its potency. Right. I mean, um, you know, there are plenty of synthetic opioids out there that have been around there for a long time. Fentanyl is, is not new. In fact, 
you know, I would say it was has been the drug of choice for anesthesiologists for years. For decades. Yeah, it <laughs> has. Uh, no but they're administered <laughs> yeah. by, yes. hopefully, yeah. anesthesiologists. Well, to right. patients, yeah. but anesthesiologists with substance use disorders, fentanyl's the drug of choice. Yes, yeah. So yeah. It, it's been around for a long time. What happened is that, you know, when you look at uh, just the, honestly, the economics of it and you know, the drug trade, um, something that is prohibited. Now we have increased the substance use disorder, the opioid use disorders, because we increased access to it in the late 90s, early 2000s. We, you know, we created that access. Um, people are gonna take advantage of it. So, um, you know, I've, I've heard it called the Iron Law Prohibition from the mm -hmm. book, Chasing mm -hmm. the Scream. It was really well described, which says when you prohibit something, typically that prohibited substance is gonna become more potent over time. And the reason is because it's more easily transportable. Um, right now, what we're dealing with is not just fentanyl. It's all the analogs of fentanyl. Now, you've heard of some of them, whether it's Sioux fentanyl or car fentanyl, um, but there are many others that have never been developed for use in human or animals. Mm -hmm. and those things are being created rapidly, and it's very dangerous. And this is what we're facing in the future. Same thing happened with cannabinoids. Same thing is happening with sedatives like benzodiazepines. Um, you know, the, the market for these other synthetic substances um, is vast. It's harder to track. It's harder to truly understand. It's going to be harder to treat because we don't know exactly what we're treating. You know, it's incredibly dangerous, but that's, you know, we're seeing that with fentanyl right now. Yeah, and that's, that's pretty scary, actually, thinking about the other drugs that are out there and may, it sounds like they could be developed and then abused. Oh, they are. Yeah. I mean, there are you know, more drugs that we don't know about that have been created, you know, in these uh, various labs, you know, that are analogs of these substances um, that are being sold and people don't know what they're buying. They don't know what the exact effects are. They'll have somewhat varying effects. Right. Um, you look at the synthetic, synthetic cannabinoids, for example, you know, or what was, what were bath salts, which were cathinones, but these things have high potency, have, you know, real, more significant effects on mental health, more significant effects while intoxicated, you know, and there's a much higher danger level associated with them. Now, are you seeing patients come in here with marijuana, uh, of course, the, the spread of marijuana and the, the accepted use of it? You maybe some thoughts on that? Um, yeah, for sure. So, you know, as we see the access to marijuana increase, we're going to see an increase in cannabis use disorder. That's right. the nature of increasing access to a substance. Um, and it's one of the things that we just have to consider and understand, you know, as we are uh, proceeding with policy and so forth um, surrounding it. Now, I do think that uh, a very important distinction is the distinction between legalization, you know, along with decriminalization, and what we're calling know, medical marijuana right now, mm -hmm. you know, and I think as a society, if we decide, hey, you know, we understand the risks of legalizing and we decide to accept that, it's a decision that can be made, you know, and we'll, we'll accept what that is. But we should educate people about what's happening with cannabinoids, where we are, the increase in the THC concentration, that that's going to have different effects, how it affects the the adolescent brain, you know, how it affects the adult brain, you know, all of that. We should really let people know that so that they can make an informed decision about their own use as it becomes legalized. Um, medical marijuana, unfortunately, was, was a pathway to getting it legalized. And on, 
that has come with a lot of misinformation mm-hmm. because what we're seeing is that you know, really very few physicians prescribe marijuana, medical marijuana, because it's not a, a medicine. Now, there might be medicine in cannabinoids. There, in fact, there are. There are some FDA-approved cannabinoids for certain conditions, such as cachexia associated you know, with, with cancer. You know, and, uh, and, um, so, and, and their effect is moderate. You know? uh, they haven't been widely used. And at some point, we can study cannabinoids and create medicine. But right now, you know, when you prescribe a medicine, you see a provider you know, who says, I want you to take this medicine at this dose, by this route, at this time, you know, for this condition, here's a prescription, I'll see you back again, and we'll decide, you know, how to continue that, when to continue that, and, and measure its effects. What's happening with medical marijuana is, you say, well, here's a card, take it for a variety of indications that haven't been proven. Some of those indications are actually things that cannabis will make worse over time, Indications are decided by states. You don't really know, you know, how they came up with these indications. Mm-hmm. And by the way, you can take it by any route you want, at any dose you want, at any time you want for the next year. And when you come back in a year, I'll, you know, give you this card again. So it's not a medicine. It's not, you know, and unfortunately that has been wrapped up and is, you know, reduced, um, you know, the the concern over the negative effects of, of cannabis. And so mm-hmm. now we have a feeling, oh, legalized it must be safe you know look we know med- alcohol is legal it is not safe right we have to use it as safely as we can but there are consequences from its use we have to understand them and, and decide if we want to do that and you know and make um, the society as safe as we can uh, if we decide to do that I think that's been my problem with it is it's been too easy for patients and I heard it from patients here that, that were suffering from cannabis, cannabis use disorder and, and patients where I'm at right now, you often hear them say, well, Mike, this can't be dangerous because I have a prescription for it. I have my medical marijuana card. And I think you, you are so much more articulate in explaining the issues behind that than I ever was or, or have been, although you just educated me and I, and I think I have a better argument with the patients now because I think that that's a really, really good point. And, and I've often said, just like you did, and that is that, that our society, because that, that largely is a political issue and I'm not going to get into the political issues, but we made a political decision that these things are going to happen, depending on the state that you're in. Right. Now, it's not true in all areas, but in many areas, right? Um, I think my issue with that, even if the... Society decides that's the route we're going to go. We're going to legalize marijuana. We're going to do that. I've come in and said, okay, but if you're going to do that, can it le- can we at least be honest about it? And follow it up with, yes, this may be true, but here, but we're not even talking about the problems that are associated with it, all the problems that, that you just described. And we're not being fair with the public about it. Because after all, if you drink alcohol, does it not warn you on the bottle of alcohol if you pick up a pack of cigarettes does it not tell you there's there's a there's something on that pack of cigarettes explaining to you why you shouldn't be doing this the same with chewing tobacco and a number of other items and that but that i've not seen that once at least where i live where okay if you do this it may be legal however here's some things that you should know if you choose to do that and i and i i think that you were really articulate in explaining those issues absolutely the I mean, public because there's really an unsuspecting public, public. To understand yeah you know what what is really there and you think about powerful forces that are 
helping to kind of push that down, yeah. you know, and to, to show another side because, yeah. you know, ultimately you know, there is, you know, there's a lot of money to be made in that. And, um, and so we just have to see what the playing field is and, and help to educate the public so that we can make the decision that we ultimately want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, guys, if you can take us out, maybe some parting thoughts on recovery or Ashley, the future, you know, just some things that you want to get out to the public. Yeah, uh, I'll start. I think in some ways, uh, just to be totally transparent, I, I, we feel as though there's a sort of period of uh, uncertainty uh, just post-COVID as we start to uh, imagine what the substitute disorder treatment field will look like mm-hmm. and, you know, how Ashley can best show up and uh, obviously serve people and have an impact and fulfill our mission. Uh but, you know, it's also a lot of opportunity in that, too, where um, I think we're, we've entered our roles at, at, at an important time. And uh, obviously, this is a milestone year for us. 40 years is, is no small yeah. feat. But the fact that we're in the strategic planning process and we're considering ways to uh, improve what we do and ensure this is sustainable and we could be here another 40 years and uh, you know, celebrate mm-hmm. uh, Father Martin and May's legacy and uh, you know, help as many people as possible. It's, it's just a fun time to be in these roles. You know, it's, it's not always easy necessarily. You know, we have our challenges just like any leader in this field does, mm-hmm. but um, happy to be here and doing it at an organization like Ashley and uh, you know, appreciate you giving us the opportunity to share a bit. No, I appreciate it, Greg. Any, yeah, yeah. You? I mean, I, you know, I think um, what I, I hope to see in the future for, for Ashley is that you know, we absolutely provide the best care to individuals that we can. But we have a larger public health outlook that will help to inform how treatment can progress and how we can improve outcomes over time. And that's why we are putting our efforts in as we are. Um, we cannot lose focus on those individuals and help each and every person that comes through here to the best of our ability to get better. Um, but I think we can learn and we can have a larger impact. Um, the other piece is that you know, everybody can recover. You know, oh, yeah. anybody can develop a substance use disorder and people can recover. And, and how do we help them get into the frame of mind where that is, there's hope for them internally that that can occur because we know it absolutely can. You know, it's more a matter of whether it will or not, but we know it can. Yeah. And hearing those stories, and I think it's in places like this, as you mentioned earlier, where you come into a place like this and you see... I'm not alone because we all feel like when we come in, I'm the only military officer. I'm the only police officer. I'm the only airline pilot or FBI agent or, you know, any of those physician that that this has happened to. And you absolutely are not the only one that that has happened to. Many, many people suffer from this. And and it's in a facility like this where you may be exposed to that for the first time. I know that was, that was true with me. And then, then you can go out and be that advocate to the others that are around you that are suffering because wherever you are in your life, your life role, profession, society, there are people in your world that are suffering. Um, that is the thing that really shocked me when I came into recovery mm-hmm. is how many other people were going through what I was going through. Yeah, I think more importantly, yeah. perhaps like the parting sentiment should be there are many people suffering from this, but there are many people recovering from this and living active, yeah. healthy, happy wholesome lives and recovery. And I think that's what we expose people to. So we not only expose people to the fact that there are others suffering like them, and but there are examples of recovery walking around this place every day, 
you're one of those today. Uh, you guys are too. Yeah, we try to be. But, <laughs> yeah. you know, we all get to share in that. And, and yeah. What a what a gift that we get to be in a place and and uh, experience each other that way. Yeah. yeah. To reduce that stigma that you talked about, which is improving, but it's slow. You know, at kind of glacial speed. There's still a, a tremendous amount of stigma out there. You know, if we focus on that recovery rather than focusing on the substance use disorder and all the consequences thereof, you know, we're going to get into a better place. You know, mm-hmm. we want to show people you know, what recovery looks like. You mentioned how you being open about it in your life, you know, you are then able you know, to help more, mm-hmm. to help more people because they, they understand what's going on with you and they come to you and seek that help from you. Yeah. Yeah, because that, that's where it's all going to begin, even if it's just you point them to a recovery uh, facility or a program, they're first going to hear it from somebody that they know, that they trust, that they've developed a relationship with. And that's where it's all going to begin. But guys, thank you so much for doing this. I know this was a long time in coming. I was looking forward to it. So are we. And it it has been fantastic. And um, I hope we do some more of these because this is very, very important information for for people that are out there. And I know uh, in this particular podcast, we do a lot of interviews of people who have gotten into recovery successfully, oftentimes after a number of starts and stops, and then they they finally get through. And that's what we need to hear. We need need to hear the those examples and um, you got you guys have really passed on a lot of information particularly on the scientific side of this and people need to you know get, have that information so they, they are convinced that this is the best way to live and by the way we're always looking for the easier softer gentler way of living life hey folks if you're struggling with addiction believe it or not recovery is the easier softer gentler way it of is. living yeah. life I know it is for the the three of us yeah. Yeah. What I, Thanks, Mike, for what you do. To thank you, guys. Thank you so much for it. You guys take care. Again, this is Mike Van Meter, uh, Recovery is Possible, up here at Addiction Ashley or Ashley Addiction Treatment Center up in Maryland. And uh, if you want to know more information about Ashley, uh, go ahead and look them up online, and, and you can find out all the information that you'd like. You guys take care of yourselves, and we'll talk to you soon. Thanks.